I'm Mike Vardy, and I'm about to have a productive conversation with John Acuff. We've got another episode from The Vault this week. That's why I did the introduction and not my guest, who is John Acuff. We're revisiting an episode from 2017, September 2017 to be specific, so five years ago, where we talk about one of his books that came out, Finish, Give Yourself the Gift of Done. And the reason I chose this particular episode to deliver to you this week is that September is my start to the new year. My kids go back to school, I'm able to hit the ground running and finish this year strong, the calendar year. So I get a head start on 2023 in this instance by starting my year in September. We get into finishing the idea of planning, prioritizing, preparing, and and reaching a state of finish no matter what you're working on. Now, John's delivered some other great stuff since this discussion, including a book called Soundtracks that I highly recommend you check out. But don't check it out until you're done listening to this productive conversation that I'm about to have again with John Acuff. Enjoy. John Acuff has returned to the Productivityist podcast to finish off where he started. John, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, That was not entirely a pun that I just did during the intro because literally his new book, your new book, Finish, Give Yourself the Gift of Done, has has just come out as this uh, episode is airing. And I have to say... um, there are a lot of dog ears in my copy of this book. Oh, good. Good. Uh, That's encouraging. All, all, all the way to the end. All the way to the end. So um, let's talk about the idea of, of of why this book now, especially since the one before this was do-over. So you went start, do-over, finish. And um, so I'm wondering where, why finish? Like, why did you go down this road in, in this particular way with this book? Yeah, I'd say it's definitely thematically out of order. But what happened was I wrote a book called Start a couple years ago that was about getting people to start things they've wanted to do. And I thought, you know, that was what mattered most. But in the years that followed, people would grab me at conferences or pull me aside at events and say, hey, no offense. I love Start, but I've never had a problem starting. I start a million things. Starting is the easiest thing in the world. How do I actually finish? What what does that take to get something done? And I thought, wow, that's a really good question. And I needed an answer for my own life. And so the way I write books is I find a problem that I think I have and a lot of other people have too. Um, And if you look at statistics, 92% of goals fail. Um, And then if you just even look at garages, like how many people have a treadmill that now is used to dry laundry or how many people bought P90X and were like, I'm going to get ripped and then didn't. And so I thought, wow, there's something here. And that kind of launched me into this research where for the first time I actually did real research with uh, a researcher from the University of Memphis, and we studied nearly 900 people for a six-month period to try to get a sense of what does it take to actually finish a goal. I, I want to talk a little bit about um, the day after perfect because you talk about that. I mean, I've gone through the book, like I said, uh, and this is in chapter one. One of the things you say is the worst part about kind of the idea of starting goals and, and never completing them, it actually feels terrible. Why do we spend so much time starting things? And it's funny, as we're recording this, I'm in the midst of a, a uh, shall we say, a fallen finish. Like I, I wanted to get this thing done. 
uh, by the end of August as we're recording this. And it's 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 likely not going to be finished. And it's something that should have been finished before. But there have been three other things that I decided to start uh, or, we, you know, so why why do we have these goals? Why do we, and the research I know you've done kind of talks about this, that we, we start all these things and then we never finish them, knowing full well that not finishing something makes us feel terrible. Well, I mean, part of it is culturally, it's the part of the process we celebrate. You know, my my 14-year-old daughter came home from eighth grade the other day, and she said, Dad, you know, there's this poster in our, our class, and the poster says, the finish line doesn't matter. What matters is the courage to start. And so, like, that's a fun thing to say, but it's garbage. Yeah. Like, if you were in the middle of a marathon and I said, Mike, remember, the finish line doesn't matter. <laughs> you had courage. You're so brave. Like, your bravery is enough. Like, that would be terrible advice. So I think culturally we teach it. Um, I think that we like to celebrate it. And then we like to leave when people have to do the hard work of the middle and the finish. Um, and so I, I think that culturally it's that way. The other thing is you have to know that starting will always be sexier, more fun, and easier than finishing. So you just mentioned, okay, I had this thing, and then these other three things popped up. Nothing in- encourages new ideas to pop into existence like trying to finish an old one. Mm-hmm. And everyone writing a book right now, like every one of your listeners, which statistically according to the New York Times is 81 to 90% of Americans say they want to write a book. Less than 1% do. The reason why is because they go, okay, like right as I'm about to finish, a hundred new ideas come up and you go, I got to put them in the book and you keep going and going and going and going. And so I think that's part of the epidemic. And the last thing I'd say is I often tell people we live in an age of bottomless opportunities and endless distractions. No one, you know, you can argue tech is good or bad or which, which parts are good or bad. No one on the planet who's intelligent would say we've become less distracted as a culture. Like, are you kidding me? Like, we have more distractions, you know, and notifications and dings and, you know. So part of it is that we just live in a distracted culture, probably the most distracted, you know, in history. How do you how do you tether, untether yourself from that kind of stuff? Because it's funny. I was talking to um, – I was actually talking to Sean McCabe about clarity and margin and focus. And the idea of, of those distractions, they, they – they crop, they crop up, they, they sneak in. Um, how do you mitigate those? Because they are the things, they are one of the things, not you've got a lot of things to get in the way of finishing, but they are, they are one of the things that get in the way of finishing. How do you mitigate those? Yeah, I think mitigate's a good word. I mean, for me, it's about reducing them, not eliminating them. Like Mm -hmm. I'll always need to use email, like not using email is a dumb goal. Um, I'll always like, Somebody the other day told me like, oh, you seem distracted by Twitter. Maybe you should stop. And I wanted to say, you've never sold a book in your life. Like, what do you think? Maybe I should stop. Like, that's not how this works. And so I think you find what works for you. So, you know, in the book, one of the things I put, I had four or five friends in my mastermind go, I'm so productive on a plane. I'm so productive on a plane. And most people, they stop right there. They don't go, huh, I wonder why that is. And huh. I wonder if I could recreate some of those things on land. And when you stop and go, why is that? You realize, well, we have a certain amount of time to work. I can only bring certain projects. Nobody interrupts me. I don't have a Wi-Fi signal on most flights. And so a smart person then goes in and goes, okay, I'm going to do the same thing just in my day, like in my normal day. And so 
part of it for me is I don't I don't get any notifications other than text messages. Like I don't have any social media notifications. Um, I had to physically hide my email app like from the bottom yeah. bar of the phone deep into my phone. Um, I didn't have an email app on my phone for like 10 days, but I realized I had a hard time subtracting. Like I couldn't divorce that from the calendar and that was an issue. Like mm. I needed the calendar. And so you just, you know, when I, when I go to write, I take a couple things and go specifically, I don't combine efforts. Like when I'm writing, I'm writing, when I'm editing, I'm, I'm editing. Those are two very different actions. And so I think it's, you know, and I don't, I don't sleep with my phone. Like I bring, I leave my phone in the kitchen. Like, cause I mean, think about it. What does Netflix give you? Like five seconds now before they start a new one. So it's like a five second countdown to you not having a life. Yeah. It's almost, it's, it, I mean, I run into the problem. Like, no, 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 stop, 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 stop. Like it's, it, whereas before it was a deliberate choice to continue. Now you have to, I mean, if you're, if you're not paying attention, all it of a sudden, like, yeah, yeah, it starts. You're like, no, but I'm not, I don't want to watch another episode of The Defenders right now. I, I, I don't. Yeah, and so I just think, you know, you have to be deliberate about it. I, I would say another thing for me, like, when I run, I was listening to too many audiobooks. Like, it was too much. So now I've started to cycle more. And I don't listen to stuff while I'm cycling because it's dangerous. And mm. so it's a forced quiet time. Um, so I, you know, I'd love to say I had the discipline to do all these things, but a lot of times I have to figure out, okay, here's, here's a way around it. Here's how I'd be deliberate. Here's what's smart. So I don't know. You just, and you have to know it's going to change. They're going to keep popping up. New things are going to come into your life that you go, Oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. Okay. Now I have to figure this out. So yeah, I think you of get, it as a game. Yeah. You get a new device and, uh, you install it and all of a sudden all the defaults that you turned off are back on and you have or to, a new app or yeah. default, like I'm tracking calories right now. Cause I'm curious and it's hard not to just like go in and be look up foods or like, there's a lot of distractions that come with that. Um, I want to talk about the types of motivation that you talk about in the book. You talk about the fear motivation and fun motivation. And one of the things that I actually, I was reading uh, the book and I got to the part where you talk about candles and, and the candle that you, you, you use. And um, my daughter and I went shopping uh, and there was actually, and I don't know if you know this, but there are actual candles that, that I, I found some candles. One is, <laughs> the smell is warm, uh, old-fashioned pipe. So I picked up that because I like the smell of a pipe. I don't like what the other after effects sure. of a pipe would be, but I love it reminds me of like a study. And so that idea of that you brought to the book, can you talk a little bit about that? Because you know why I picked up that candle. Obviously, there's a there's a there's that there's that I, I want to have that 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 avatar that it brings or, or that 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 kind of trigger that it offers. But you have the candle. Can you tell a little bit about what that what that candle means to you and, and how you use it? Yeah, it's just marketing. I mean, it's a triggering effect. Like when you walk into a W hotel, the smell, the texture, the lights, they're using every sense to move you in a certain direction. I mean, at busy times of the day, Chipotle plays faster music to get you to eat faster and leave. So why wouldn't I use those same tricks on myself? Mm -hmm. So one of the tricks for this is I'm only going to light this candle when I'm writing a book. And so it's a, like an extra reward for sitting down to write the book. Like, is it a big deal? No, of course not. But is it something I look forward to? Yes. I mean, my favorite one of those kind of games, so to speak, is in the book. Um, a guy I know, 
his wife has a huge like to-do list for him, like change the light bulb, like fix this door. And so he has a jacuzzi. It's his favorite thing. Is he's a he gets in a jacuzzi. And so he said to himself, before I get in the jacuzzi, I I'll I need to do like a 15 minute chore. And now he says like if I don't do one, I don't feel good in the jacuzzi. Like he's so Pavloved himself that he's like this is the thing. Like he's related them so closely. So I just think you figure out what works for you in that sense, and then you make it a game. The secret rules that you talk about in this book are also pretty, uh, pretty compelling. I mean, you, you bring up stories of, 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 you know, actors who chose certain film roles and how, why they went down this road and all of a sudden, oh, it'll, it opened doors for them to do things that they really wanted to do. Can you talk about how secret rules can impact your way to finish? And maybe a little bit about maybe one of your secret rules that you kind of smoked out yourself. Yeah, so I, you know, I would tell you honestly that this chapter is my favorite chapter of any book I've written. Um, I just think it's such a helpful idea, um, and I think it's going to really encourage a lot of people. So the the chapter starts with this really interesting story that I heard um, about cuckoo birds. So the cuckoo bird is what's known as a parasitic brood. So what that means is when it's going to have a baby, it doesn't build its own nest. It finds another bird who already has had eggs in the nest and puts its egg alongside them, and then it leaves. And the cuckoo has a faster incubation cycle, so it hatches first, and the first thing it does is kill all the other birds. Now, the mother bird, not recognizing this different species, usually ends up dying from having to overfeed this huge, massive bird. Um, because it'll be like a finch with a gigantic cuckoo. And so I relate that to the lies that we've just come to believe over the years that if we really looked at them, we'd go, wait a second, this isn't a, my, my bird. Like, this isn't the truth. Like, what are you doing in this nest? And so I relate, you know, the, the, I'll give one example of a friend and then I'll share one of mine. So my friend, super powerful um, executive for Viacom, Gets a job traveling from New York to L.A., decides, okay, I got to get new luggage, like hip new luggage. So he gets new luggage. It's painful. It's the, the shoulder strap digs in. It's great looking, but it's like a lot of things. It sacrificed function for form. And so he's at the airport one night, and he sees this woman, you know, business-dressed business, business woman walking through the airport, and she looks calm and peaceful, and she's wheeling a bag. And he had to stop and say to himself, wait, wait, wait. When did I start to believe that wheels don't count? And that was one of his rules. And so that's what I mean. A lot of times when you work with people, whether they're your employees, a friend, and you go, they're so close to getting it right, why do they always sabotage? It's often because they have a secret rule they believe. Um, you know, Money is bad is a secret rule that a lot of people believe. Um, I had a friend at dinner tell me, Ah, that guy, that CEO makes $20 million a year. How do you think he sleeps at night? I wanted to say like probably on down Hungarian down pillows, like very comfortably. And his secret rule was a certain amount of money is evil. And so I would say one of my secret rules, um, I I guess one of my secret rules would be that people don't want to be bothered. Like friends don't want to be bothered. And when you ask them for help, it bothers them. And the truth is, because you always have to find the truth. The truth is, Friends love helping friends. Like when I, you know, for the launch of this book, I just had to be super vulnerable. Like I don't like asking friends with platforms to help. I don't like, you know, but for this book, because I think it's the best book I've ever written, I wanted it to sell. And in order for that to happen, I had to be brave enough to say, 
It's not true that my friends don't want to help. In fact, they're usually excited when I ask them for help. So I'm going to do that. And so I had to work on that secret rule. And a lot of times, high-performing people, like my favorite one in the book, the, and she, she says it's crazy. She knows it's crazy. I'm not saying anything she wouldn't say. This woman said, hey, one of my secret rules is that to be in shape and to be fit is slutty. And to be out of shape is more humble. And she said, I know that's crazy, but that's what I tell myself. And I thought, like, a lot of times you've inherited them from parents. Like, a mom, my friend's mom, I have a friend, really successful, multimillionaire. His mom used to say, anybody who has that much money is probably doing something illegally. And he finally had to say to her one day, like, mom, you like, you raised me. You know that's not how I live life. I make a lot of money. That Stop saying that. That's just not true. And so, yeah, that, that concept to me, I think, could be a whole book. Let's talk about the idea of data now, because I've become more fascinated with it as well as of late. I'm very much a, I'm a very qualitative person. And and having read your books before, uh, you know, I, I there's a qualitative nature to your book, to, to all of your writing that I found. And, and um, when you started to do 30 Days of Hustle, you're now applying quantitative data to it. And all of a sudden you're starting to do research and, and data is something you draw, dive into in this book. What, have you always been a bit of a, a data person just kind of, quietly behind the scenes analyzing things and then searching for like the qualitative relationship to that no, data. No, dude. It's no, so unnatural to me. It's yeah. So, like, I'm 41 now. So I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> no, I just decided I want things to be a lot easier. I want to win more. Right. And so my, the phrase I say in the book is data kills denial, which prevents disaster. Mm. Um, and so like, here's a stupid data example. So for the last couple of weeks, a friend of mine had this app they like where it's like a calorie app. And I was like, I'm curious about that because I've always been the guy in a, you know, in an emotional sense who says things like, um, you know, hey, uh, what do I need to you know, do to get in shape? I'll just exercise really, really hard. And people would tell me, well, you know, like health, like eating is like 90% of it. I'd be like, well, I'll just do even more. Like, and I'm not going to even look at that. I'm not going to crack the data. So finally, I was like, this is exhausting. So yeah. I started keeping track of calories. I'm like, here's an example of data. I'm at a steak restaurant and I say, hey, I'd like that horseradish with the steak. And they go, do you want raw horseradish or the cream? And I go, give me both. And while they're bringing them, I look up the calories. The cream is 220 calories. The raw horseradish is seven. And that was what I wanted anyway. Like I, I wasn't saying I like cream on steak. I was saying I like horseradish and the flavor. And so knowing that data gave me exactly what I need to make a decision. And so that's what I tell people. And it tells the truth. You know, I had an example in the book and you've done this before. If you've ever launched something or sold something online, like it, my daughter, she's 14. Just the other day, she said, dad, cause she started a, she started a new Instagram photo account and she has a personal account. So she said, dad, I posted it on my story of my personal one and a hundred people looked at it and only one person signed up for my photo one. And I said, welcome to social media. And that was easy for me to say because I had the data that said, yeah, like if you're new to something, you think, oh, you share it with, with 100 people, you get like 40% response. And you're like, no, that is not. And so I just think it may, helps you make so many better decisions. Where, okay, so since I, I'm in the same boat, like I, I mean, at 43, I'm kind of, I've, I've spent time obviously with productivity analyzing data to a certain degree, but I'm not sort of into that quantitative self to the same degree that a lot of other people can go to. Where do you have a kind of a, 
again, a rule surrounding that that you maybe you're like saying, hey, you know what? Data is going to help me make decisions. But at the end of the day, like I have to have a, a measured balance between the two or I have to have some kind of harmony. Or are you at the point now where the data, like you say in the book, like and you've you just said data eliminates like it can it can ward off denial because it just tells you the truth. Like, no, where I mean, are I you think, at with that? Yeah, I think it's a balance. I mean. I think, um, on the one hand, like the idea of me getting too data focus is hilarious, you know, because like, yeah. I'm so far away from that naturally. But on the other hand, I would argue one of the reasons a lot of goal setting books don't work is that they're written as if you're a robot. Mm -hmm. They go, here's all the logical reasons you should do this thing. And then like, you're not going to do that thing. And so I'd much rather you as an emotional human go, yeah, I know like my favorite example of this. So I worked for Dave Ramsey and he has this principle the debt snowball. And so Dave says, hey, if you've got five debts, mathematically, you would think I got to pay off the one with the highest interest rate. And he said, but psychologically, it's better to pay off the one with the lowest amount you owe, get the win and then roll it into the next one. And so everybody was like, that's dumb, Dave. Like scientists were always telling him like, that's the wrong way. And then eventually Time Magazine did a study and said, hey, Dave's, Dave's right. Like psychologically, that's what works the best. And so I think it's a marriage. I think it's a marriage between going, okay, there is logic and I want to make a great data decision. Um, but there's also that emotional part of you going, hey, I know that's right, but it's not worth it. Like for instance, for the first two weeks when I was doing this calorie counting, I was like, ah, I'll just drink black coffee. Like I don't want to waste the 40 calories on cream and sugar. But then like two weeks in, I was like, that's stupid. Like I'll do a hundred squats to make that up. Like that matters to me. I don't mm -hmm. like drinking black coffee, like some sort of caveman. Like that's like, I, I emotionally, I like a little bit of cream and sugar. Like I'm not going crazy, but I think you have to marry it because we are emotional. We do have feelings, but I still, I, you know, I still think you need data to say like, Oh, wait a second. Like the reason a lot of plans fail is because people don't want to put data. They want to, they want to plan with miracles where it's right. like, and then this happens and it's a miracle. And then Ellen finds my book at her doctor and it's a miracle. And you go like, that's not, I don't like plans that depend on miracles, especially multiple miracles. I was at VidCon this year and there was a lot of, um, which by the way, if you've never been to it, it's basically just fan expo for YouTube. I thought there might be a little bit more to, for me to learn at it. I, all I learned is that YouTube's really popular. Go figure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and people like, people like photos <laughs> of YouTube people. But what, a, one of the, one of the, um, a lot of the panels, there were some that were, there was like a couple that were really, really good. Very, uh, you know, how to, here's how you should do things. But there were a lot of them were, hey, here's how I hit the big time or here's how things happen. I created a video. It went viral. And now I'm here. I'm like, well, that's not data. That's super helpful. <laughs> that's, that's, that does not help me at all. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's but what I what I want to get to now is the idea of. When you want to not only start something, but when you are at the point of finishing, because this is where I can tell you, honestly, this is where I'm at right now with a lot of things. A book proposal that I'm working on, for example, you know, I'm sitting there re writing it and working on it and mapping it out. And all of a sudden, despite my ardent love and, and my own wearing of the Green Lantern ring, uh, fear, it just it, it, it rears its ugly head in many, many forms. Why? First off, what what are you, what are your thoughts on fear? I know you talk a lot about it in the book, but you don't just talk about fear in 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 its its most basic form. You talk about the forms that it can take on. Yeah, I mean, I think one of them, you know, that the book talks about a lot is the idea of perfectionism. 
um, mm-hmm. as if and the problem was we treat it like a characteristic or a good thing. And it's, it's not. Um, and I, you know, I've been telling authors lately that, that Amazon has never sold a perfect book. They've, they've sold millions of imperfect finished books. Um, and so I think part of it is to fulfill what I think it's going to fulfill. I, you know, sometimes it's, I don't have a thing after it. I'll, I'll feel really like, well, now what, you know, like that sense of like, Oh, um, and I, <clears throat> yeah. And the other thing you have to remember is that when you finish, it's no longer yours and it's no longer private. So if I have a small business idea and I work my heart out on it in my room until I finish and share it with the world, I don't get criticized. You know, like I, I could have 10 books I've written under my bed. Um, so the finish that that's why you can't, you know, you can't overestimate the intimidation of the finish line where you say, okay, people are going to know this. Like people are going to judge this. I remember Tim uh, Sanders, great author said to me, Hey, do you want to know what Kurt Vonnegut, the author said to me? And I was like, Oh my gosh, of course. And he said, Kurt Vonnegut said, Mark Twain would have killed himself if Amazon reviews existed when he was a writer. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, Cause he's right. You know, like he didn't have to deal with that. So I just think there's, it just becomes this buffet of possible pain. And if you overfocus on that versus what will happen when you finish, you, you miss it. And the other thing is like, here's the thing nobody likes to talk about, Mike. You don't control the miracle. Like you send your work out there and then you, you really like every YouTuber there who is telling people how they like went viral. It, it's garbage. Like it was a series of things outside of their control. Like I don't control Kathy Lee Gifford finding my book at her doctor's office and having me on the Today Show. Like I don't. Like I know my efforts will sell an X, X amount of books, but I don't control a quarter million. Like I wish I did, dude. Like I would sell that. It would be a video course, like, you know, whatever. But I think that's part of it too, is that sense of vulnerability and admitting the part I control is over and here we go. I, I want to touch on one more thing before before we wrap up. And that's the idea you you dove into the idea of perfectionism, but I want to talk about the idea of that those goals, um, and and how goals we we feel like we have to have a lot of them in order to move forward, you know, in or and and we end up kind of sabotaging ourselves because there's a lot of goals that we have and we never fully realize them. You talk about the idea of goals in the book and how some of them, you know, the idea of smart goals and things like that and where that fits in. Can you touch on that a little bit more? Because I know there's a lot of people, in fact, we're going to see uh, Leo Babata at, at, at Jeff Goins' Tribe Conference. He's got the no goals uh, that he talks about, right? So where 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 do you sit on goals when it comes to the idea of, of how they can impact what you finish and how you finish? Yeah, it's it's always funny. Like sometimes when people say no goals, they're using a different word and they're like, have purposes. Oh, okay, fine. That's vernacular. Like, and the idea of having no goal is a goal. Like that's what's like, we, you know, if you want to do something deliberate, call it a goal, call it a plan, call it a desire whatever. Um, I think part of what I hope to do with this book is to attack and refute popular goal statements that aren't helpful and actually hurt you. So one of the approaches that's very popular is to say, Oh, you've got a financial goal. You need a physical goal and you need a relational goal 
need a spiritual goal. And so what most books do is say there's seven parts of your life. You need a goal for each one. But Mike, if you told me like, John, I'm going to learn Norwegian, I wouldn't say learn six other languages too. That would be terrible advice. If you were training for a marathon, I wouldn't say train for six other events, like train for an archery tournament. And so I'm a much, and again, it's counterintuitive. And I think like some of the raw, raw entrepreneur people aren't going to like me necessarily. But the reality is that, you know, the less you are able to focus on, the more you get to focus on those things. And so, for instance, I think, you know, every goal should start with what am I going to suck at during this time? So, you know, and that can be a million different things. In the store, in the book, I tell the story of my yard was garbage when I had kids under the age of three. It wasn't the time for me to have a good yard. Like there's some dads out there listening that their golf game should suffer when they have a newborn because they're not playing six hours, you know, on the weekend. Like that's not failure. That's, you know, deliberate, deliberate kind of putting something down. Um, so that's what I like to do. So I like less goals. I don't like to prioritize them. I think that's the biggest time trap in the world because you try to prioritize them perfectly and you never will. Um, I like to have a handful of goals going at the time. I like to have some big ones that are far out. Like I want to ride my, I got a new uh, bicycle. I want to ride it 10,000 miles and then I'm going to buy a new mountain bike. Um, but I'm not worried about that 10,000 miles cause that's four years out. Probably I'm more like, how many can I get this week? You know, how many can I get this week and move it on? So last question, the book is finished. The book is now finished. You're done it. I mean, there's, yes, there's all the marketing and the post post-production. How does it feel? Um, it feels good. I mean, I think, you know, it's intimidating. <clears throat> I think as an author, this landscape is intimidating. Um, I always tell authors like, if the size of the Lego department at Barnes and Noble doesn't scare you, you're not paying attention. Like whole shelves of, of books have been eaten by Harry Potter puzzles. Mm. Like that's, that's a real thing. Um, or I'll say, Hey, next flight you're on, walk down the aisle and count books versus videos people are watching. And like, dude, it is not encouraging. And so I think the selling of books is challenging, but I'm excited to get it into people's hands. I think it's my most accessible book. Um, I've been really excited. I had a, a company buy 5,000 copies because every company I talked to says our people could be better at goals. They could be better and we want it to be fun. Um, so yeah, so I'm excited about it. I'm just excited about learning new things about how to serve an audience. Well, I will say I've read all of the books you've put out, you know, and we've had you on the show before to talk about do over. Sure. And, uh, this is, I, I say this is your best book today. Oh, thanks. That, that means a lot. It's, I appreciate that. It's really quite good. And of course, if you've never seen John speak before, I've had the pleasure of seeing John speak at World Domination Summit. Again, a killer speaker. So if you ever get a chance to see John speak in person, entertaining, informative, everything you want in, in a speaker and everything you want in a podcast guest, John, where can people get the book right now? And uh, is there anything else that you're doing that you want to share that maybe you've started uh, that that now people can take a look and see the progress, so that when it's finished, they 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 can they can kind of be part of that process as well. Yeah, I mean the book's available anywhere books are sold, so Amazon, Barnes and Noble, local bookstores, um, and then my website is just acuff.me, acuff.me, and then I write a, an idea once a week for entrepreneurs um, that you can get. It's just a free idea. It's acuff.me/business, and that one is probably one they could watch me finish something because. Eventually, I'll turn those into something. 
Um, and it's been a blast and I'm really enjoying serving specific audiences with specific content versus like broad audiences with broad content. Awesome. John, thanks so much for joining me again this week. This podcast episode is now finished. Thanks. Again, big thanks to John for joining me back in 2017, five years ago, and I look forward to having him on the program again in the future. You want to catch all the show notes that we talked about, there'll even be a link to Soundtracks there, which again is a book that I think was written for me. <laughs> but actually, I think it's written for a bunch of people. It's a fantastic book. Uh, you can check out everything John has to offer. But go to the show notes to get all of that information. Just go to productivityist.com slash podcast 442 and you'll be able to get everything there. By the way, you don't want to miss a single episode of what's to come. We've got uh, Mo from Boomerang coming up, uh, another Vault episode coming up in the not too distant future and episodes booked until February of 2023. We are massively prepared for the months ahead. And you can also easily access the archives, including John's previous appearances on this program. All you need to do is subscribe to the podcast. I encourage you to do that. Uh, by the way, I also encourage you to check out the sponsors that were shared during this episode. Go to productivityist.com slash podcast sponsors to learn more about them and check out what they offer. That's a fantastic way to support the show. The other, of course, being to subscribe to the show. That's it for now. I'm Mike Barty, the host of A Productive Conversation. We come back to you next week with a fresh new episode featuring Robin Hills, where we're going to talk about resilience and emotional resilience in particular. Can't wait to share that with you. Until then, I'm Mike Vardy, the host of A Productive Conversation, reminding you to stop doing productive and start being productive. See you later. <laughs>